morning. Uh, it's glad to, glad to be back. It's good to be here after missing a week. Uh, we, we hate having to make that call, but last week um, just had no choice. So welcome to Mission Church. My name is Justin Crow. I serve as one of the uh, associate pastors here at Mission who I occasionally get to preach, and I'm honored and privileged every time, uh, including uh, this time. Uh, confession, pastors are extremely fragile creatures. We try to put on this persona that we're not but we're extremely fragile. So when we get an extra week of prep time, when we've already prepared, because I was ready to preach last Sunday, I just spent the whole week second-guessing everything that I had down. Second-guessing, well, should I add this? Should I take this away? So the good news of all of that is that here at Mission Church, we firmly believe in the sufficiency of Scripture to preach itself. And this text, uh, not above all other texts, but above many texts, it preaches itself. It tells us what it says, it says what it says, and that's the, that's the end of it. So uh, as we approach this text today, I want to go ahead and give you my intentions. My hope today is to get you to answer for yourself, where is my true and abiding confidence? Or even more specifically, is my true and abiding confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ for myself and for others? Is that where you place your hope? See, last week, well... Last time, as we introduced this letter from Paul to Timothy, uh, we saw Paul warn Timothy that people were going to creep in and try to preach a gospel that was not the true gospel, that they were going to preach a message that went counter to the true gospel of grace. We looked at examples of that last week, and it reminded me of a book called Marks of, a Mes of the Messenger by J. Max Stiles, and he says this in that book. It says, Losing the gospel does not happen all at once. It is much more like a four-generation process. First, the gospel is accepted, so everybody believes it. Everybody's cool with it. Second, the gospel is assumed, meaning, well, we don't have to repeat that. Everybody accepted it. We'll just kind of move on. Third, the gospel is confused, which is exactly what we talked about last week with these false gospels that sound close. They sound about right, but they're confused. And then fourth, the gospel is completely lost, and we're off track. Here at Mission Church, we never even want to get to that second tier. We never want to get to where the gospel is merely assumed. This happens in a church when we think we have somehow moved past the elementary gospel or we've moved past to, our, to more weighty issues and weighty matters and we, we just kind of gloss over the gospel to get to these other things. This assumption begins with the pastors. Pastors who probably started with great intentions. Probably started, man, I am ready. I want to build the kingdom of Jesus. I want to do this. But then it doesn't seem to be working exactly the way they thought it would work. Or we're not growing as fast as we thought we would grow. Or this seemed to work that one time. Let's just duplicate that. Or it's working for that church over there. Let's just do what they're doing. And again, the gospel is confused. The gospel is, is lost. And then we find ourselves in what Paul is warning Timothy here. So because we never want to progress to that second step here at Mission Church, we jokingly, but not really jokingly, say we got one sermon. We take a text, we make a beeline to the cross, we, whatever a beeline is. We make a beeline to the cross, we make a beeline to Jesus, we make a beeline to his, his death and resurrection. And we make no apologies for that. So that's where we're headed today. The beauty of this, though, is this text makes a beeline for us. We don't really have to... To, to get there. The text takes us there without question. It is one of the most clearest, the clearest, most clearest, the clearest representations of the gospel message 
in sentence form that we have in Scripture. And we'll get there. Okay? The question is not so much what does the text say. It's as much as do I believe it wholeheartedly? Do you believe it wholeheartedly? Do, do you, do I believe that we need it for salvation, for daily life, for perseverance, for all of these things? And lastly, does the gospel truly possess the power to change even the least likely candidate that you know? And if we do, then what does that mean for our lives? So even in preparing the sermon, I had to answer these questions for myself. I had to ask myself, and do I really believe that it's, it's the text that will change people? It is God's words that will change people. Do I truly believe the best words spoken today will be from this book or from my mouth? Or do I feel like I've got to church it up, make it new and make it, make it catchy and make, hopefully y'all will tweet it later or what, any of those things? Or do I just rely on what God tells me to rely on? See, hopefully what you hear from me today will reflect a deep and abiding confidence in God's Word, in the Gospel. And where do I derive that confidence? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. If that is the case, if that word is true, if Romans 1.16 is true, that means simply speaking the words of this message will change hearts, will change minds, will change people, will change souls from going to hell to going to heaven in an instant. Notice that text gives no credence to the speaker, to the method, to the tone, to the evangelistic method, to how catchy it is, or any of those things. It simply says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That is what I want everyone, including myself, to leave here with today. A deep, abiding, unassailable trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. A trust that can hold up to your doubts, to your questions, because they will come. Even pastors who've been pastors as long as, as Pastor Eric, or even longer, still struggle with doubts, questions. People ask them questions that they don't know the answer to right off, and you have to go study God's word to find it. That's okay. Because we know, we trust, we have confidence in the gospel upholding the weight of those questions, the weight of those doubts. We know that it will work. We've seen it change hearts and minds. We know that it is the power of God to salvation because of the people sitting in this room. And I pray and I hope that we can leave here with a trust similar to, if not identical to, the one Paul states in this text that we can erupt in glad submission and joyful worship, just as Paul does at the end of this. I pray that that is what it leads to, a life lived for the gospel that we trust. Now, I don't want to assume the gospel. I also don't want to assume that everybody knows the exact story of the Apostle Paul. I know we've heard this before, but we're going to go over it really quickly again because it plays a role. Okay, at the time of this writing, most biblical scholars date this text to within about five years of Paul's death, which means he's coming to the end of his ministry and life. Now, obviously, he doesn't know exactly when he's going to die, but he, he sees the writing on the wall. He kind of alludes to, uh, in a few of his writings around this time, like, hey, bring me my stuff because, you know, I, just, I need it for the last minutes of my life. He, he kind of alludes to knowing, hey, I know what's coming. See, Paul was not always Paul, though. He was known as Saul. He was known as a ravager of the church. People knew him as that. When Paul was converted, many of the disciples thought he was just a double agent, right? They thought, oh, he's just trying to sneak in and get close. He's trying to catch us off guard and act like he's a Christian now, and he's going to come in and he's going to get us. They were, after they were assured that he wasn't, Paul was, 
See, the business of persecuting Christians was going really good, so why would anyone turn their back on it? So they were, they were confused. Paul was doing so well at this. In Acts chapter 9, he goes to the high priest and asks for more leeway, more permission to go chase down Christians. It's kind of like they were holding him back almost by their rigid laws or whatever. And he was like, hey, can I get, can I get more leeway to go farther out and to get more of these Christians and gather them up? And it was on that journey that Jesus himself, after his resurrection, after his ascension, appeared to him person to person and converted him. That's pretty much the uh, trump card to Testimony Tuesday right there. You're like, hey, how'd you meet Jesus? Well, I, wonder, I mean, I'm, I met him too. You know, a friend introduced me to him at youth camp. Yeah, I met him. Like, I met him, met him. Yeah, but he's, I thought he left. Yeah, yeah, he came back to get me. Like, just me. Like, nobody wants to hang out with Paul because he's the one-upper. If y'all remember the Saturday Night Live, the one-upper, like, person that's always got a better story. That's Paul. Yeah, I met Jesus. I got saved. Yeah, I, I met Jesus. So, Paul, after 30 years of being saved, this is 30-ish years after that moment, after Jesus met him, met him on the Damascus Road, and Paul is still not acting like that past didn't exist. He's not, he's not Queen Elsa, let it go. He's not just let, let, letting it, all right, that happened, no big deal. No, he is still very much understanding that's what God saved him from. We see Paul give a nod to this and remind the reader here in a moment that he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent, read that as violent opponent of Jesus and his followers. But look what he's saying right before he reminds us of his past life. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul is fervently thanking Jesus for appointing him to his service here. And need I remind you that Paul had the world by a string before Jesus. Since then, he's been beaten more than once. He's been flogged more than once. He's been arrested too many times to even count. He's been stoned, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake. That's probably the worst one in my book, but whatever. Who knows what else all has happened to him. And it all happened just because he's following Jesus. Had he not made that transition Basically, none of those things would happen. The snake, maybe, I don't know, but he probably wouldn't have lived through it. So this is, this is where he went. He went from excelling in everything that he, he does. He makes nod to this in other writings as well. I was on my way to the top. I could have had the world by a string, materially speaking, respect. I was revered, all of these things. And he went from that to prison over and over again, including when he's writing this. And yet he is thankful. He thanks Jesus for making that change in his life. Thank you, Jesus, for appointing me to your service, even though it led to all of these things. And he's reiterating, he's living out what he wrote in Romans chapter 8, that suffering, the sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. See, Paul truly believed that. Paul had an unassailable confidence in this gospel. He knew that his eternity was established. He knew his eternity was held in Jesus' hands. He knew it. He had confidence, confidence in it. He had been healed by Christ, and he was thankful for it, even though all of these things followed. Paul is thankful first that he was called by Jesus to be in his servants, especially given his past. He reminds Timothy of that past, as if Timothy had forgotten. I doubt that he had. But he reminds the, the reader of this letter 
hey man, I was a terrorist. And I know that word elicits all kinds of different images in your head, and that's fine, because that's what Paul was. Paul's a terrorist. He may not be the picture we see now, but that's because he didn't have the technology we have now. He, he would have killed just as many Christians as anybody that you basically see on TV hunting down Christians had he had the ability to do so. Imagine Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein coming to faith in Jesus. This is what has happened to Paul, and this is what he is saying in verse 11, that it can all be attributed to the glorious gospel of Jesus, the real one, not these false ones that we talked about a couple weeks ago and what he is warning Timothy about here. The real gospel did this to me. The real gospel changed me. And this is the first time we can ask ourselves, do I trust the gospel this much? Do I trust that this gospel can save a terrorist or multiple terrorists or many terrorists? The leader of a terrorist organization, can the gospel do it? The worst of the worst, Republicans, Democrats, whichever side you're on, sex offenders, murderers, homosexuals, drug addicts, do we truly believe the blood of Jesus is enough to wash whatever you deem the worst people? Because everybody's got a different image of what's worse than this, what's worse than that. All the people in New York that voted, yet whatever day it was this week, that we can kill babies basically however old they are, as long as they're not outside the womb, can the gospel save those people? Because they need it. If they voted yes for that, they need it. I make no apologies for talking about that. I'm not getting political. Abortion is a gospel issue. We must be willing to say that it is. But can the gospel save those people? Even though they voted yes. Can the gospel save them so that the next time it comes up, they're the spokesperson for voting no? Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus is enough to describe to save the worst people? Because this is exactly how Paul goes on to describe himself. The next verse, depending on your translation, it's the foremost or chief of sinners. The worst of the worst, Paul is describing himself. Do we believe the gospel that saved this man? The worst of sinners. He deserved wrath. He deserved punishment. He deserved death. But Paul says he received mercy instead. He goes on to say how, verse 15, in one of the, again, clearest, easiest, simplest proclamations of the gospel that we have in Scripture, it is told here precisely why Jesus came into the world. But first it tells us that it is a trustworthy message. It is a message worthy of full acceptance. Before he even goes into that, he tells us the, these things. He describes it. It's trustworthy. This means that the gospel itself is strong enough to bear the weight of our hope, to bear the weight of our doubts, our sins, our salvation. It will hold up under all of that weight, and nothing else will. It will not let you down. The gospel will live up to the promises that Jesus put forth. It is worthy of full acceptance. This message is not half worth, worthy of half-hearted acceptance. It is not worthy to be used when it is convenient or when it is pragmatic or when it is practical or when it seems to be working. This message is not worthy of doubt-filled acceptance of just in case, just in case hell is real, I want to be on the right side of things, so I kind of, yeah, yeah, I believe it, just enough to hopefully I make the cut. This gospel is not kept behind glass. In case of emergency, we break it open, but if everything's going okay, we don't really need the gospel. No, 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 it is worthy of full acceptance. It's not that it's your truth, this is my truth. 
No, it is the truth. This message is trustworthy. It is worthy of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. This is why he came. This message is worth giving your life to. Worth giving your life to proclaim. Which is exactly what Paul is in the midst of doing here. He didn't come for primarily for social justice. He didn't come for your best life now. He didn't come for your happiness. He didn't come to answer your prayers. And when he doesn't, we get mad at him and start doubting whether he's good or not. All of that may be wrapped up in there somewhere in some way. But Paul's very clear here. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's on a rescue mission. He came to save us. This is why he came, to save sinners. And you're thinking right now, Justin, you already said that. I know. I'm going to say it again. Christ Jesus came in this world to save sinners. This tells us two things. One, sinners are in need of rescue. That's all of us. That's every person that's ever lived. We need rescue. We're drowning in a sea of sin. The Bible is clear that we are already dead in our sins unless we are given life by Jesus. There is no way that a perfect and holy God can interact with us in any other way than wrath, death, and punishment unless someone intervenes. The second thing it tells us is that Christ is the one that intervened. That we needed rescue because God's wrath was going to be poured out for His glory on sinners and Christ intervened so that some who had faith in Him would be saved. I believe there are two common uh, yet connected misconceptions that hinder people, hinder especially Christians from placing their full trust and confidence in this gospel to save sinners, to change people, to change hearts, to change minds. They either think people are too good or they think people are too bad. See, most people don't identify themselves with Paul saying he's the worst of sinners. Most of us don't claim to be the chief or the foremost of sinners in our lives. Now, we will admit, oh, I, I mean, I sin, yeah, but even in our head we're thinking, but not as bad as that guy or that guy or that girl or whatever she's doing or he's doing. We, we try to think of ourselves as really just not that bad. You're wrong. All of us are wrong. When we think that, we're wrong. Look, I don't know how to make that any, I don't know how to church that up. You're just wrong when we're not that bad. And that's me. I do this. In my own head, I don't tell y'all that. I don't tell you verbally, oh, I don't think I'm all that bad. In my head, I think it, though. I live that way. See, you may look at Paul's life and say, well, I never killed or persecuted Christians, so there's at least one guy that was worse than me. There's at least one guy that I can say, okay, if he's the foremost, then I'm at least under him. But look at what Paul is saying here. Make sure you read this correctly. He's not saying he was the foremost of sinners because of the stuff he was doing. Okay? He says he was formerly those things. He, he gives nod to that. But then he goes on to say, after reminding us of his past, it's as if he moves past that and goes, but I am still, I am the foremost of sinners. He's using the present tense. He's not using the past tense like he was when he said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. I am the chief of sinners. It's two different things there. Romans chapter 7, he says, and I won't read the whole text, but he's saying, man, all the things I want to do, I don't do them. And all the things I don't want to do, it's what I find myself doing. I don't want to sin, I sin all the time. I want to do good, and I don't. 
And then he concludes with verse 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He wrote that after his conversion. This is not written when he was persecuting Christians and saying, man, i got to be saved from this, this action that I'm doing. This is not good. No, no, no. This was well after he was saved, well after he was converted, and he's still wretched man that I am, not was, am. And this is the mentality that we must take. We must understand that we are this. We are wretched men and women in the eyes of God left to our own devices. In this room, if you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible is clear that you are living in a body of death. You are dead in your sin. Someone must come and breathe life into you. And again, we tend to think, all of you are still thinking, or might still be thinking, I shouldn't assume. But I, but I'm, I still think my sins are not really that bad. Especially now that we've been converted, right? Especially if you are a Christian in this room and you're trying to do well, you're still probably thinking, but, but are they? And this is simply a lie from the pit of hell. It is not the sins we commit, but who we commit them against. Every sin, every single solitary, tiny, little, bitty, white lie of a sin is cosmic treason against the creator of the universe, saying, I know you told me this, but I, my way's better. And I know better. And I'm going to do this because I'm better at holding my life together than you are. And I need to do this that's against your will. It's cosmic treason. We create these false levels to sin all the while that we are forgetting. It takes the exact same blood, the exact same cross, the exact same death, the exact same grace, the exact same Jesus to forgive a murderer and a gossip. Uh-oh. A blasphemer and a glutton. Remember that at lunch today. A lying thief, a prideful, self-reliant person who thinks they got it all together on their own. Same blood, same cross, same death, same Jesus. So when we make levels to this sin, we are making light of that sacrifice. It is an exercise in futility to compare them because it does not matter. You deserve wrath. You deserve death. You deserve punishment. And because of Jesus, if you have faith in him, you won't receive that. We must pray for God's grace daily, not to become puffed up in our law-keeping. Because look, some of y'all, not a lot in this room, but some of y'all are pretty good at this. Keep the law pretty well. I, can, I, can, I know who the goody two-shoes are in here. I'm not, I'm not one of them. Please hear me. But so we don't get puffed up in our law-keeping ability, lest we forget that that ability comes from Jesus, from his grace. Listen to this por portion of a prayer from Valley of Vision. Apparently, we're going to quote that like every week here anymore because it's just that good. But it says, Lord Jesus, I sin. Grant that I may never cease grieving because of it. Never be content with myself. Never think I can reach a point of perfection. Kill my envy. Command my tongue. Trample my self-will. Give me grace to be holy, kind, gentle, pure, and peaceable. May I come to thee, cast myself on thee, trust in thee, cry to thee, be delivered by thee. But grant me to hear thy voice assuring me that by thy stripes I am healed, that thou were bruised for my iniquities, that thou were made sin for, for me, that I might be righteous in thee, that all my sins are forgiven. I am guilty but pardoned, lost but saved, wandering but found, sinning but cleansed. 
sinning of any kind should break our hearts. Not because of the effect that it may have, because a lot of times we sin and nothing really happens, right? We, we know we did it wrong, but nobody caught us or it doesn't really have a negative effect. It should break our hearts because who we have offended. And this should send us running, sprinting back to the cross every single time, just like that prayer did. I sin. I don't want to. May I grieve over it. I never see sinning. I'm never going to be perfect. But may you remind me, Jesus, of what you have done, what you have accomplished, what your works have done on my behalf. Because here's the thing, and I believe this wholeheartedly, that minimizing sin is what makes us scoff at the causal agent of our salvation. Look at verse 15. What makes all of this possible? The grace of our Lord overflowed for me overflowed. Paul is saying that all of this that you see, my life is totally different than what it was before. I think everyone that looked at him would go, yep, you're right, it's totally different. It is totally different, and it is all a product of grace, and it took an avalanche of it, and it still takes an avalanche of it. Paul is not saying, I got the avalanche, now I'm good. No, no, no. It still takes this overflow of grace. It overflowed on him. Imagine if you've ever been there or seen Niagara Falls, it's a, it just seems like a never-ending uh, cycle of water. It never seems to be letting up at all. I don't even remember the number I read of how many gallons fall over that thing every second, but it is, it is amazing how many gallons just pour over that every second of every day. This is what Paul is saying. It is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that just keeps overflowing on me. When I do the things that I don't want to do, when I don't do what I want to do, it is grace that just keeps overflowing upon me. And the problem is, is that too many times we devalue grace by minimizing sin. If you take notes, write this down. Trivializing sin devalues grace. Problem is, is we don't see what we're doing when we try to make excuses for ourselves, but this is what we're doing. My sin's not so bad, even though Jesus still had to die for it. We many times make our, do this to make ourselves feel better, our self-esteem culture, uh, we don't like, who, <laughs> I, I would ask for a raise of hands, but I already know the answer. No one in here is like, man, call me a wretch. That sounds like awesome. First of all, it's just an ugly word, like wretch. It just sounds ugly, but two, like, no one wants to be called that. Valentine's cards ain't got wretch in there, all right? It's nowhere to be found. Nobody likes that. So we think that even though Jesus, yes, had to die for our sins, but it wasn't like so bad, we, we kind of just hold on to this, I was decent, right? I was halfway there. I was, it was almost me. Robert Schuller, he's a doctor known in his work. He's, I don't know if he's known now, but he was at the time known uh, for this self-esteem era. Like he was the doctor of self-esteem. And he said this, he claimed to be a Christian. I don't think that anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelistic enterprise than the unchristian, uncouth strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. Because self-esteem is more important than eternity in hell, apparently. Don't tell people they're lost and sinful. It makes them feel bad. It hurts their feelings. That was written in the 70s. Imagine if he came out with that now. Like, you, you can't say anything about anybody now. Like, comedy is dying because you can't make fun of anybody anymore. I'm going to keep doing it just so you know. Okay, many people would agree with this, though. 
They would agree that self-esteem is that important. How dare you call somebody a wretch? Or how dare you call somebody sinful or dead? Can you imagine that? We're telling people they're dead. Why, though? It's not my opinion. I, I would rather come up here and tell you flowery messages. It would probably go over a lot better a lot of the time. But the Bible tells us if you are outside of Jesus, you are dead. And you have to be told that because if not, why would you cling to his grace? If you don't know that you are absolutely hopeless, why would you find your hope in him instead of just continuing to hope in yourself? See, being unwilling to admit to ourselves first and to others that is only by the abundance of Jesus' grace overflowing into your lives that you are saved. It is only by that overflowing that anyone can be saved because our wretched hearts are so wretched. Being unwilling to say that, it doesn't work any better. When he came out with this, I'm sure a lot of people tried it. There wasn't a grand revival of Christianity during that time any more than there is at any other time because the gospel is what saves, not making people feel better about themselves or making them feel worse about themselves because that's not the whole intention either. Walking up to someone and be like, hey, you're going to hell, that's probably not going to work either. It is about sharing the gospel, sharing the hope found in Jesus, the confidence we have, the hope we have in his grace that we can depend on that. That is what will save people. But grace is no longer amazing if it is applied to decent people. And yet, probably today, somewhere in America, people saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved and strengthened me. There's multiple versions of amazing grace out now, in case you weren't aware, because they take the wretch part out, because you can't sing about being wretched in church. That'll make everybody feel bad. Look it up. Y'all think I'm making that up? Look it up. My question, though, is even in just that song lyric, what's so amazing about that grace? I mean, it's all right. But for grace to be truly amazing, it must be applied by a holy God to completely unholy people, by a sinless Christ to a wretched sinner. That's amazing grace. That is unbelievable grace. That is grace that you go, uh, huh? Explain that to me again. Because if you, if you aren't taken aback by that, even now if you've been a Christian your whole life, if you're not taken aback that a holy God looked at a completely unholy person and said, you're saved, you're mine, you're going to worship me forever, and that doesn't make you go, whoa, check yourself. That's all I'm saying. See, in response to that quote, Paul Turrier, never heard of that guy either, but he's a Christian author, says this. Believers who are the most desperate about themselves are the one who express most forcefully their confidence in grace. Those who are the most pessimistic about man are the most optimistic about God. Those who are the most severe with themselves are the ones who have the most serene confidence in divine forgiveness. By degrees, the awareness of our guilt and of God's love increase side by side. It is the continual knowledge that God is here and I am all the way down here that makes me worship this God more because he's reaching farther down to save me. I didn't climb halfway up the ladder and then, oh, 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 hey, man, you need some help? It's nothing like that. He reached all the way down. He sent his son to save sinners. The understanding of our sin and the understanding of God's grace grow in tandem. Low view of sin, low view of grace. High view of sin, and I don't mean glorifying it, but just the high view of how bad it is, high view of grace. 
The idea of God's grace overflowing from a never-ending source is what frees us up to be honest. Because guess what? We're all in the same boat, and it's all sinking if we're the ones dumping the water out. We're all in the same boat. We can be honest. We can tell people we're in desperate need of a Savior, whether that's for salvation or just daily living. We can admit that I've tried. Man, I've tried this so many times. I just keep failing. I just keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this. That's why the correct answer should be grace there. Now, that doesn't mean we don't tell you it's sin. If you meet with one of the pastors of this church and you confess a sin, we're not going to be like, don't worry about it. We're going to call it sin. And then we're going to point you to the cross every single time. Because we can't do anything. There's not a self-help book that oh, well, take these 10 steps and count to 10. And if you're angry, just breathe hard. Like, it's the gospel. The gospel will save you, but the gospel will, will also persevere you. It will give you the strength to be obedient. It frees us up to be honest with ourselves and with others that we can say, along with Charles Spurgeon, I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. Trivializing sin devalues grace. Devaluing grace then devalues the price paid in order to save sinners. Devaluing the price paid for sinners means you are devaluing Jesus. Because he's the price that was paid for sinners. That's how that works. That's the four generations of losing the gospel right there. A devalued Christ is not so much worthy of worship as he is a hug or a high five or a fist bump or whatever. A Christ that is, only, that is saving okay people that halfway did it themselves, I'm not worshiping that guy. I'll just worship the guy that did the other half. Why not? But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we were dead in our sin. Christ breathed his life in us and saved us because that's what he came to do. The second misconception that can be directed at others and ourselves. You ever invited somebody to church and they said something to the effect of, man, God strike me down if I showed up in church or the roof would cave in on me or whatever, okay? The second misconception is that we or others are too far gone that grace cannot be extended far enough to save them. To answer this, this one's quick. Just refer back to misconception number one. We are all that person, and God still has saved people. So therefore, no roofs caved in today. I see people in here that, hey, if it's going to, hey. All right? When you begin to view everyone, including ourselves rightly as wretched sinners in need of abundant grace, this misconception disappears. We are all that bad. Left to ourselves, we are that bad, and the roof should cave in on us, and yet it doesn't because... God saves people because Christ came to save sinners. How do I know that no one is ever too sinful, too stubborn, too far gone, too whatever for grace to be extended to them? Because there are millions of Christians in the world. There are people in this room that wholeheartedly believe this gospel, and they were that person. We are all the foremost of sinners. John 1, 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace upon grace. This does not free us up to sin more before anybody goes off that track, right? Realizing that no one can ever outrun God's grace is not permission to live sinfully. The Bible is very clear. If you write things down, write this down too. Grace covers our attempts at perfection, not our celebration in freedom of sin. Or freedom to sin, sorry. Grace covers our attempts at perfection, not our celebration of freedom to sin. We cannot claim grace has any bearing on us when we willfully and purposefully practice a lifestyle of sin with no regard to obedience to Christ. 
This does not mean you won't slip up. This does not mean you may not commit the same sin time and time again. There is a difference between I'm going to commit that time and time again versus I'm really, really trying not to, and I slipped up again. God save me. God show me grace. God show me mercy. Two different things. But for those who are in Christ, it is an overflow of grace upon grace. Grace for salvation, overflow. Grace for obedience, overflow. Patience, faith, love, perseverance, daily living, overflow. It never ends. It's the Niagara Falls of grace, and it never stops. We can, like Paul, admit that even still currently today, even post-conversion in Christ, we are still the chief of sinners while simultaneously praising the one who came to save sinners, who came to take away those sins, who came to pay the debt that we fully owe. This is what Paul means by overflow. It's a never-ending supply. Martin Luther said it this way, Just as the sun is not darkened by the whole world enjoying its light, just as a hundred thousand candles might be lit from one candle and not detract from it, so is Christ our Lord, an infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it to make the whole world angels, it would not lose a drop. The fountain always runs over, full of grace. That is beautiful. If every human being that has ever lived in the history of time turned to Jesus, and it would all be Jesus' work, but if they did, there'd be enough grace to cover it, and then some. Double over, triple over, quadruple over. Can't name the next one, so I'm not going to keep going. But however many times over, that many people, there is enough grace in one drop of Jesus' blood to cover all of those things. From big sins, little sins, all of those levels we try to make, it took Jesus to pay for them, but he paid for them. He paid enough for them. This is the mentality and understanding we must adopt in our lives. No one is ever outside of the reach of God's grace. This goes for believers and non-believers. The grace to persevere and get back on track for believers, the grace to truly turn from their sin, repent, and follow after Jesus for the worst of the worst of the worst, whatever your definition of that is, God's grace is enough. You cannot extinguish the flow of grace coming from the cross. You see, most people, I think, if you ask them, would say that the reason why more and more and more and more people aren't coming to Jesus, aren't putting their faith and trust in Jesus, is their hard-heartedness. They're, they're, uh, they have too many questions, too many doubts. They, they just don't want to turn to Jesus. And absolutely, that's, that's part of it. But I would suggest to you that maybe the bigger problem is that so-called Christians don't have enough confidence in it to share it with them. They're not turning their back on the gospel. They ain't hearing it. Because we don't have enough confidence that that person over there that's really, really bad might be saved. We don't really believe it enough to go speak those words because it might be awkward and he might say no. That's what I think the bigger problem is, is that Christians don't have a strong, unassailable hope and confidence in the gospel. We say no for them by not sharing with them. We must remember that the gospel is the power, not our presentations, not our power of persuasion, not the way we phrase it or if we have all answers to their questions, because you're not going to. Even I don't. I deal with questions all day long, Monday through Friday at Hope House. And sometimes I just go, man, I don't, that's a good question. I do not know. Let's find it together. But this is why Christ came. And this is why Christ saves the foremost of sinners. This is why you should look at people that seem to be the most hopeless and go, that's who God's probably going to save. Because that's what he did here. And why? It says, that in me, this is Paul talking, that in me, 
the foremost sinner, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I get this question from new believers or at least people that claim to be new believers all the time. Why me and not so-and-so? I was way worse than him. And my answer is now changed to that's why, because you're way worse than him. Because he doesn't see his need for the Savior and you do. Because God saves those he chooses to save to glorify him most to reveal to others their need for salvation. This way, people can look at others and go, well, if he can do it, I can definitely do it. Because that's what we do with Paul, right? Well, if he, I mean, he's killing Christians. If he can do it. In other words, he saves the unlikeliest candidates so that other unlikely candidates can find hope in this powerful gospel instead of themselves. So when you see someone and go, there ain't no way he's going to believe the gospel, that's who you should share it with. If you go, that person's, that, he seems like he's almost there. Like he's just... A skosh away. Go share it with him too. But definitely go share it with the least likely candidate because that's who God chooses to save. So in contrast, many times we get arrogant about our salvation. God chose me. I mean, of course he did. <laughs> Look at me, right? Or I'm saved. I'm okay. Don't care about everybody else, right? But this should cause great humility. Because this means God saved you. If you're in this room today and you are saved, God saved you because he knew people looking at you would go, oh, she got saved. All right, maybe I do have a chance, right? So don't get arrogant about it. You should be humbled by it. But this humility, that's what drives us to worship because we know we had nothing to do with it. That's who I want to worship. I want to worship a God who did all the work, not most or some of the work. This humility oozes from Paul right in the middle of his letter. He's writing this down, right? And it's like he can't control it. He is so overwhelmed by the truth of his salvation, by grace alone, through zero effort or deserving on his part, that he can't contain his excitement. And I want to remind you, he is so in awe of this gospel and so in awe of his power, 30 years or so after he was saved. This ain't the day after. We all had that moment, right? We all, oh, God saved me. Woo! I'm going to go tell everybody for a week. And then it's old news. Maybe a month. Maybe a year. Paul's been at this 30 years, and he's had gone through a lot of things that should have dampened his excitement about it. Again, prison, snakebite, shipwreck, all of these things that we named earlier. And yet, he breaks out to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Are you... Christian in this room in awe of your own redemption and salvation to this degree. A wretched sinner like yourself can now be included in the number that worship God for eternity with no sin, no tears, no pain, no any of those things. By grace alone, are you in awe of that? Or has the newness rubbed off? Has that become old news? Yeah, I'm saved. Let's keep going. It's a sad statistic. Yep. It's a sad statistic to know that newer Christians are the more likely to share their faith than veteran Christians, even though in theory, the veteran Christians should have more knowledge of Jesus, should have more knowledge of the word, should be able to answer questions better, should have more confidence that, okay, I can handle this conversation because I've been in this. I've been studying his word. One, maybe that's not true, but two, why, why? Why do we get to the, its old news? Why, do, why does the newness rubbed off? 
And it's probably because we are forgetting our former life. We are forgetting and underestimating the gravity of our own sin that Christ saved us from. When you think of Jesus and you think of his miracles, walking on water, changing water into wine, right? Healing people. He raised people from the dead, literally, physically. Like a dead man who stinketh came out of his grave and was like, what are y'all doing and why are y'all crying? I'm fine. He saved people from, uh, little girls from death, right? If you don't number the fact that you are saved amongst the greatest miracles Jesus has ever done, you are, you need to reevaluate how sinful you are, how sinful you are. It is a miracle of epic proportions that anyone in this room, including myself, could ever be saved. That a holy God could look at an unholy sinner and go, I can do something about that. I can pay for that. I can come down and save sinners. Christ came to save sinners, of whom you and I are the foremost, and yet here we stand, destined for heaven. Nothing anyone can do to change it. No one can take that away. You can't change your mind. You can't back your way out of it. If you are saved, you're saved because Christ came to save sinners. This is the gospel. Christ came to save, came into the world to save sinners. This is the power of the gospel. It's salvation for needy sinners. This is what we hold out to them. The gospel message. Jesus died for you. Jesus' grace overflows for you. You can come and be numbered with the people that will worship God forever by placing your faith and trust in God and then trusting that that word is enough. You don't have to, again, soup it up and make it sound better. That is enough. And this is why he is worthy of all praise and all worship. So my questions to you as we close this morning, if you are here and you are in Christ, so you know you're saved, you know that you can worship Jesus for this reason, just like Paul, because he has saved you, the foremost of sinners. Does the hearing of this truth today elicit this kind of worship? We're getting ready to sing another song here in a moment. Are you, like Paul, overwhelmed by the fact that we get to sing those songs and they be true about what Jesus did in your life? Or is it become boring and uninteresting and we're just going to sing a song and go home? Because if it does, if it elicits that kind of worship, good. Seriously, that's awesome. And I hope that it does every week. Because again, next week, it may be from the next text, but you're going to hear the same sermon. So just get ready. Jesus, cross, resurrection, worship. But if it does elicit that kind of worship, great. Why aren't you sharing it with other people? And I'm not saying all of you aren't. But if you're not, why aren't you sharing it with other people? If you truly believe that it can do what it says it can do, then why wouldn't you go just cast and seed everywhere you go? Because it does it, not you. Oh man, I'd only have two minutes to talk to him. That's long enough to say one sentence. Hey, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You're a sinner. Huh? Huh? I gotta go. That's, that's it. Now, does more need to happen there? Of course. But that gets the ball rolling instead of, hey, how's the weather? You warm enough? Why does everybody ask that? You staying warm? No, it's cold outside. I'm not staying warm. That's why I'm wearing this coat. You don't have to ask me again. Let's talk about Jesus. Okay? Did you see the game? Don't even know what game you're talking about. Forget it. All right. So, if you are in Christ... Why not unleash that message on people? Charles Spurgeon is often misquoted, so I'm going to use the real quote because I think it's better. But it's about a lion. 
So some people already know what I'm talking about. But it says, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in his cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should, su should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was too humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Are you speaking these words? Because they do something, not because you do anything. Okay? You're going to mess it up. You're going to get it right sometimes. You're going to do a great presentation. That person's going to be like, peace, never see him again. You're going to do a terrible representation. They're going to be sitting in this room. You know why? Because it ain't about you. It's not about me. It's not even about me today. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just speak the words. Let the gospel do its work. Let it put its full power on display. Now, if you are in this place, and you are hearing my voice today online or wherever, and you are not in Christ, you are not numbered among the redeemed, saved sinners like Paul, I just ask you to believe it. Just believe this. Believe this gospel. Admit you're a sinner in need of grace. You can't do it on your own. You've proven that over and over. If you want proof again, just go the rest of this week and don't sin a single time. Don't do anything outside of God's Word by your own power and just Report back to us. See how it goes. If you think you can do it on your own. Just one week. Actually, just go tomorrow. Tomorrow's Monday. Nobody likes Mondays. Just do it tomorrow. Right? Trust in Jesus. Admit you need grace. Trust in Jesus to be the one who saves you from sin out of the immense overflow of his grace. Place your confidence in him. Place your hope in him. He can. He will. He is powerful enough. His shoulders are broad enough to hold you up. If you surrender your life to him, place your trust and confidence on the broad shoulders of the gospel. Beg the one who holds eternity into your hands to show you mercy, to show you grace. And if you truly beg him, you truly give your life over to him, his answer is never no. Never. He's never like, sorry, I'm not going to save you. If you truly ask him for this grace, for this mercy, admit to him, I can't do this on my own. Only you can do this, Jesus. I thrust myself upon you. I thrust myself at the foot of the cross for your forgiveness, for the overflow of your blood and your grace into my life so that I can be numbered among the believers, among the people that will spend eternity worshiping you. He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Won't you please believe this today? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word is sufficient. I pray as your words that pierced hearts this morning, not mine. I pray you moved me completely out of your way so that you can move in this place. And we thank you that you are still moving, not only in this room, not only in Bowling Green, but throughout the entire world. You are redeeming people through the overflow of your grace some of which when they least expect it and aren't even asking for it. I pray you snatch people up even in here today. People that came in here thinking, yeah, I'm good. I'm saved. I pray you pierce their hearts and they realize that they weren't, but that they are now. That they have thrown themselves at your mercy or on your mercy, on your grace 
to save them because they cannot save themselves. May we never fall into the false gospel of relying on our own works to save us because it will never work. But may we always trust in the works that have already been accomplished through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we beg for His grace every day, every hour, every moment because we know You have a never-ending supply and that You will give it. We love You, Jesus. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen. This morning we'll come to a time of communion. Uh, this is a, especially when you miss a week, this is just a very special time for us. And we want to invite you, if you are a guest here today and you are a baptized believer in Jesus and you know that Jesus has saved you and you are in good standing with all your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have no uh, ill will or grudges held up uh, and that you um, have gone to that person, you've reconciled all of those things as the Bible would tell us, we invite you to the tables. If you are not a believer in this room or those other things are not true, I'll be at the back of the room. Please come talk to me. I would absolutely, we don't do the altar call here, but we do have the back of the room and you can come talk to me about any of those things and I will be glad to talk to you. But as we come this morning, may we remember that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and he gave his life, his body, and his blood to do so. And every sin you've ever committed, that had to be paid. But it was paid. So may we worship him for it. So as we sing this song, take the time to, to pray, confess, repent. Offering is on the side. We don't pass the plate or pass the bucket or any of those things. They're on the sides and one in the back. If you're a guest, connection card, put it in the back as well. We would love to know who you are and how you found us. Uh, I'm going to pray one more time, go right into worship. And I pray that if you are a believer in this room, that this song, that you've never sang it this way before. I don't even know what song it is. forgot. Okay, but that you have never sank because you understand now how wretched of a sinner you were and how much Christ had to pay to save you. So if you would stand, I'm going to pray and we'll go right into that.